Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Coming up on this week's program, celebrating the legacy of Zora Neale Hurston in Edenville. All people need to know uh, their heritage. A person who doesn't know where he's been has very little chance of charting where he or she is going. A visit to the home of Hurston contemporary and fellow writer Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. Some of the neighboring folks said that she would spend anywhere from 8 to 10 hours out here every day just banging on that machine, which initially they did not understand what she was up to. The history of quilting in Edenville. That and much more ahead on Florida Frontiers. When I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over, hey, 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 you can't you line it, oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack can't you move it, hey, 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 you can't you try, eat him up whiskers so he won't shave, eat him up body lights he won't bathe, shove it over, Hey, 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 oh, can't you line that? Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack <clears throat> Can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? That's a 1939 WPA recording of writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston documenting a work song she collected in Florida in 1933. Best known for her 1937 novel Their Eyes Were Watching God, Hurston grew up in Edenville, which is the oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States, established in 1887. For the past 20 years, the town of Eatonville has celebrated the legacy of its most famous resident with the annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities held during the last week of January. N.Y. Nathiri is executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and founder of the Hurston Festival. She says that when the event began in 1988, few people outside of Edenville were aware that it was the first town exclusively governed by African Americans, and the writings of Zora Neale Hurston had a limited audience as well. We were very uh, specific about the role that this festival was to play. Initially, it was to present historic Edenville in a way that most people in Central Florida did not view Eatonville. I dare say that historic and Eatonville would not go in most people's minds, not, not, not go together. Additionally, most people did not understand that Eatonville is a literary destination because I think that many people were not aware of the impact of Zora Neale Hurston. Now, I know that there are some doubters who think, perhaps they don't think it now, but when we first started, you know, there's marketing and there's hype and there is hype. Uh, and so all of this talk about Zora Neale Hurston 
and I mean really who was reading her anyway and if she that that whole business of well if she was so great why didn't I know about her how is it that I could have gone through undergraduate school and not been introduced to her in my Norton anthology I mean I have a master's I have a PhD in American literature and I didn't hear of Zora Neale Hurston to that I would say that Robert Hemingway her literary biographer who spent about a decade researching her life because he couldn't believe that he was a tenured professor and had not had an opportunity to study this woman's work. So I would say to those academics, for example, who might say, well, why did I know it? Don't feel bad. It's okay. <laughs> you weren't by yourself. The, the fact is, however, that Hurston's work is the only advocate that she needs. What we had to do with Festival was to utilize that work to say what Eatonville represents in that spectrum of literary destination discussion, and hence what Eatonville could become. When many people hear discussions of historic preservation, they think of buildings in disrepair or dusty boxes of documents and records. As Mrs. Nathiri explains, that is really a misperception because historic preservation can be an important economic development tool. My, um, I guess you'd say my bias from a preservationist point of view is that when we, when we gather, when the weirdo preservationists gather together, economic development and preservation always go hand in hand. It's only out in the larger community that preservationists are seen as the dodo birds, you know, and that, that then means that the preservationists need to get themselves organized and get the message out that preservation is economic development. I can't tell you over the last four or five years how many national conferences have addressed this in one facet or the other. Clearly, for us, heritage preservation, cultural tourism, literary destination, all of those phrases are part and parcel of what we see as our heritage resources. Over the past two decades, the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities has gained an international reputation as one of the finest events of its kind. The event has a scholarly component with academic discussions, varied performing and visual art presentations, and a street festival with storytelling, arts and crafts, and food. The Maitland Art Center, the Crealde School of Art, the Enzion Theater, and the Orlando Museum of Art are just some of the institutions that have partnered with the Hurston Festival. And why theory? The Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community as a parent organization has enjoyed a number of collaborative relationships uh, with sister institutions, arts institutions in, in uh, the greater Orlando, Orange County, Central Florida region. And it is gratifying to, to have the confidence of some of our colleagues to invest time uh, two, three years out, because typically when you're working with museums, you're talking three, five, sometimes ten years out. Rollins College in Winter Park is one of the chief collaborators of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. 
Over the past two decades, Rollins College, which was established in 1885, has helped the Hurston Festival to present art exhibitions, musical performances, and theatrical productions. The Rollins College community was also very supportive of Zora Neale Hurston herself. Well, you, you must remember that Zora Neale Hurston was writing in the 30s, and at that time, especially in the context of the South, there weren't voices coming out of the South. The Harlem Renaissance, remember, is New York City, okay? And that's, that's a different context. Um, a professor at, um, at Rollins helped uh, Zora Neale Hurston to get her first short story, I believe, published, or her first novel published. And from that time, there was a, there was a relationship that, that transcended the social mores of the segregated South um, in, in that certain persons on that campus stepped away from and stepped um, over the barriers of the segregated South as they, as they recognized the, um, the, the worth of Zora Neale Hurston's work and the need to assist her as they could. You'll remember back in 1993, we uncovered, discovered, so to speak, um, the, um, the program From Sun to Sun, which, which was not staged at the Annie Russell, because that would have really, I, I think that what that would have required was a, a bit more gumption than even, even Rollins had, uh, you know, not, not to stage that kind of a, of a program. Uh, at at the main facility, but it was staged in the re recreation house to a white audience. I mean, uh, uh, black people were not allowed to come on. But as you look in terms of increment, and also as you look at what was happening at that time, uh, clearly this was uh, revolutionary. So uh, Rollins has uh, has enjoyed, and I might say not just with Zora Neale Hurston. I believe that there's a stone there for Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune. That Rollins tradition. Uh, represents, let's say, the finest of what happens when, when an educational institution, when an intellectual center, dedicates itself to representing what is, what is the best, regardless of what skin color it comes from or what ethnic background. In January 1994, Rollins College placed a stone on its Walk of Fame in recognition of renowned poet, performing artist, and educator Maya Angelou. A supporter of the Hurston Festival for the past two decades, Maya Angelou says that Zora Neale Hurston has been a major influence on her writing. Miss Hurston's work encouraged me and informed me and did all the things that great literature is, you know, must do for, uh, for the species. Um, I would, I, I, I find it impossible to say where you know, that her dialogue or her prose or her immediacy, because she uses a language which is absolutely immediate. Uh, whether, what, what of those facets of her, her work has impressed and influenced me? I read everything. So, and I don't take a book and say, ah, okay, from this I'm going to get alliteration, or, you see, or, in this particular instance, I'm going to look for imagery. I don't do that. I simply read. Just take it, put it in the brain. Mm -hmm. And so, Miss, I couldn't say exactly how, but I know that she is a major influence in my life. 
Zora Neale Hurston's writings, such as the novel Their Eyes Were Watching God and her creatively embellished autobiography Dust Tracks on a Road, bring early 20th century Florida to life in colorful detail. Maya Angelou remembers when she first encountered Hurston's work. Yes, I would have said I read her first in the 40s when I was reading. At one period in my life, for almost six years, I was a mute, and um, I read everything. So I could, uh, I would would have read um, first, her first in the 40s, and then again in the 50s. Elizabeth Alexander was the inaugural poet for President Barack Obama, but Maya Angelou was the inaugural poet for the man that writer Toni Morrison called the first black president. Maya Angelou recalls writing the inauguration poem for Bill Clinton. Very exciting. It's very challenging. Uh, it's almost impossible to write a public poem. I mean, the two, the two words are mutually exclusive, you understand. But, um, to, and, and people began to feel they owned the poem long before I wrote it. So on planes and in supermarkets and down the street, people would say, Hi, how are you doing? How's the poem coming? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Um, the the idea, the ambition to speak for my country, for my fellow Americans, is a vast ambition. Um, I I had to continue to put myself at ease by remembering that Miss Emily Dickinson traveled 67 miles from her home, and she spoke for human beings. Her poetry is for human beings. Um, I had to continue to remember that there were people, whether they were as ambulatory or or, uh, as uh, much given to travel as um, Walt Whitman or as centered as Paul Lawrence Dunbar, that people dared to speak for all people, you see. And that's the only way I could approach it with any grace and hope for success. Mr. President and Mrs. Clinton, Mr. Vice President and Mrs. Gore, and Americans everywhere. A rock, a river, a tree, hosts to species long since departed, marked the mastodon, the dinosaur, who left dry tokens of their sojourn here. Any broad alarm of their hastening doom is lost in the gloom of dust and ages. But today, the rock cries out to us clearly, forcefully, come, you may stand upon my back and face your distant destiny, but seek no haven in my shadow. I will give you no hiding place down here. You, created only a little lower than the angels, have crouched too long in the bruising darkness. The purpose of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is to preserve and promote African-American history and culture. Maya Angelou says that celebrating history is essential for all people today. All people, all people need to know uh, their heritage. A person who doesn't know where he's been has very little chance of charting where he or she is going. He must know. And I do believe that people live in direct relation to the heroes and sheroes they have.
always and in always. And all those people who went before and paid for you, Mr. Brokemichael, and for me, need to be cherished. One needs to, just the grace of saying thank you uh, increases and enriches our present lives and prepares us to enrich the lives of those who are yet to come. It is very clear. Um, this festival is, um, has a singular importance. Um, it is not a festival in New York City or in Hollywood. It's not a festival in Chicago or any of the big metropoli of the world. It's in Eatonville, Florida. And so it is singular in that the festival, its existence itself, educates without a person having to even come here. He or she is forced to recognize this was the first incorporated all-black town in the United States. That's fantastic to know. Many black people don't know that there were any, and not to mention whites or Spanish-speaking or Native American, you see? So it's a, it has a singular importance. Now then, of course, the larger importance or, or maybe the more glamorous and attractive importance that it brings together these people who have achieved and we get a chance to say to the young people, steady on, come on, you know, and do it and we believe in you and all the good things. It really uh, is remarkable in itself and of itself. And so the, um, the conveners have had great dreams. This is a very ambitious project. The Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is held annually during the last week of January in historic Eatonville, Florida. Yeah, I'm a woman walking across the field, a mouth exhausting like an automobile. Shove it over. Hey, hey, you can't you line it? Oh, shaka, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, hey, can't you try? The captain got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm gonna take it if it make me mad. Shove it over. Hey, hey, can't you line it? Oh, shaka, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. You can visit us in person at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa or stop by our website at myfloridahistory.org. On that website, you can shop for books about Florida, listen to archived Florida Frontiers programs, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. That web address again is myfloridahistory.org. Zora Neale Hurston is one of Florida's most celebrated writers, along with Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. Hurston actually visited Rawlings at her home in Cross Creek. Janie Gould takes us to the home of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. They got their eyes delivered from Hawthorne, about 15 miles from here. That nice plant there, and they'd come out a couple times a week, and you know, she'd get a 50-pound block. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings wrote the best-selling novel The Yearling, along with many other literary works, while living in North Florida scrub country. She bought the Little Frame farmhouse in 1928. It's in Cross Creek, and like the rest of the nearby homes, it had no electricity and no indoor plumbing. Rawlings did most of her writing on the porch. 
She recreated the cracker dialect that she did so well on a sturdy manual typewriter. Some of the neighboring folks said that she would spend anywhere from 8 to 10 hours out here every day just banging on that machine, which initially they did not understand what she was up to. Gail Rowley gives guided tours of the house as a park ranger at the Marjorie Kennan Rawlings Historic State Park. Everything in the living room, with very few exceptions, is original. There's a library over here. I'm wondering if these are some of her first editions. These are the books that she had. We've been told by one of her maids, Idella Parker, who is still alive, that anywhere where there was an empty space on the floor with an empty space on the wall behind, there were books stacked all the way up. Was that one of her original chaise lounges for reading on? Absolutely. The red velvet fainting couch, so to speak. Okay, let's walk through. Which way would you like me to go? Okay. Oh, look at this behind glass. These are some of her works, some first editions, right? Absolutely, and that's why we do keep them in the display case. Let me see if my history is good. The first book was South Moon Under, is that right? Actually, the first book was Jacob's Ladder. And her last book was at the Sojourner? Absolutely. In fact, it was the only one of her works that had nothing to do with the Floridians. It was about a farming family up north. And it took her a long time to write it. I know she had trouble with it because of that fact, I guess. Oh, no. Sojourner took her almost 11 years to write, but a lot of that was because of a depression that was caused by a lawsuit for the book Cross Creek, and she was in court for six years over that, for which she would lose. She was sued by her best friend for defamation of character and invasion of privacy, and it was at the end of that suit that she vowed that she would not write about Florida again. When Jacob's Ladder was published in 1933, Rawlings spent some of her earnings on a luxury, indoor plumbing. Since the neighboring folks had never seen nor heard of indoor plumbing before, she hosted a gala event by filling the bathtub full of ice and drinks, put a silver tray of glasses across the sink, and put a dozen roses in the commode. Rawlings also entertained the likes of Robert Frost and Zora Neale Hurston. She was actually more vain about her cooking than she was her writing. She was known to tell folks that they were more than welcome to criticize her writing, but any indifference to the food she placed on her table would send her into a rage. The dining room was the only room in the house with finished floors. The neighboring folks would call it a Yankee floor, therefore this became the Yankee room. And even though she explained to them that she was not a Yankee, that she was born in Washington, D.C., didn't matter. It was still above the Florida-Georgia border. She was a Yankee. When Rawlings died in 1953 at the age of 57, she hadn't spent much time at Cross Creek in recent years. She bequeathed the house to the University of Florida. So after she died, it became a writer's retreat for journalism students. Now it's part of the state park system and a national historic landmark. We see approximately 30,000 people a year through the home, which again just shows you how uniquely well-built these homes are. With 30,000 people walking through this home, you know, a good old little tiny cracker wood home, it stands up to all of them. Janie Gould of WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Well, you know that I have trials and tribulations. I've been built and I've been scorned. That's the Williams Singers recorded in 1988 at the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs. 
A fluffy quilt is a comfortable place to lay your head. Phil Dudley has this look at quilters from Zora Neale Hurston's hometown of Eatonville. And that one there, my mother made that, I call that checkerboard. And that's all cotton. And it's all handmade. Now in her 70s, Josephine Burns is one of three generations of African-American quilters from the town of Eatonville near Orlando. Burns remembers watching her mother make quilts for the family in a time when, for many Americans, life's necessities were made rather than bought. Yeah, you need warmth. Yeah, you need to have coat. And you weren't able to buy it in those days, so they used quilts. And uh, she made it out of scraps. When she passed, I said, well, I'm going to take this truck full of scraps and I'm going to do something with it. And that's when I start putting scraps together. 88-year-old Ella Dinkins says she learned the art from her grandmother. When we were children, we had our main meal at noontime. And then in the afternoon, we'd had tea and she'd sit us on the porch in the swing and we'd have embroidery and quilt making. For Shelley McKenney, one of the pleasures of creation is the sight of her grandson interacting with his very own quilt. When he was maybe nine months old, he used to like to hide under things. And I would throw that quilt over him and, and we play peekaboo under the quilt. With their work on display, the three quilters were guests of honor at an event held at Eatonville's Zora Neale Hurston Museum of Fine Arts. People who see the exhibit are struck by the bold yet elegant designs of the quilts. Some are made from scraps with jumbled colors and print patterns in a kind of chaotic rhythm. Others follow more traditional styles and patterns. It started out as need to have quilts to keep you warm, but they're done with such beautiful assembly of materials and a spirit of creativity that just calls out for us to notice them. It's a part of our heritage in America that we haven't learned a lot about. Susan Rossoff is Curator of Education at the Orlando Museum of Art, which in spring 2007 has been hosting the internationally acclaimed G's Bend Quilters exhibit. She says G's Bend and parallel exhibits like Eatonville's serve to redefine the way we look at a traditional art form, often take it for granted. We thought of, of quilting as stemming from a colonial tradition, being very patterned with a lot of attention to how they're pieced together, how fine the stitching is, and how closely the corners match. But the spirit of these quilts comes from a totally different place. Quilt patterns are often improvised. The quilters spoke of going where the finger leads them. While no longer using cloth from flour and grain sacks, factory scraps, and old work clothes as their grandmothers once did, each of the three prefers stitching mostly by hand. It's art. It's beautiful. It's beautiful work. And you see what your fingers can do. It's, it's relaxation. That's what it is. Because when you are sewing, you have your mind on making your stitches correctly and don't stick your fingers so much. <laughs> I think it's inherited. It, it was just something I just knew how to do. It's just a part of my being, really. I, you know, I, I can't help it. They're not what we expect, what we would pick up you know, or see in the catalog that comes to our house. They startle us with their originality, and they're full of surprises. We realize that these were created with scraps, with things that were left over, and so we appreciate that we don't have to always go to the store and buy something, that creativity comes from inside, and that we're honoring that that spirit. 
Making a quilt is part of a textile art that dates back to the dawn of humanity, according to University of Central Florida cultural anthropologist Elaine Zorn. When we think about early humans, we think about stone tools usually, but probably the first tools were made from textiles. They may have been made by women, and they were probably bags, bags made out of vegetable fiber nets to haul around those babies and all the food that people were gathering. The Eatonville quilters want to pass on their craft. Plans are to invite young people to participate in a public program at the museum. But some, like Ella Dinkins, are skeptical. Some of them might want to do this, but if you can't put it on the computer and do it, then they're not interested. The technology generally is very simple. A needle, a bunch of sticks. The true technology is in the mind of the creator. And so when it's not passed down, it's lost. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. Join us again next week for Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.